Hey everybody and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, got another great interview show for you this week. We've brought back John Graham Cumming, the CTO of Cloudflare. He is always so fun and interesting to talk to. Uh, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a propeller head episode, as Steve Gibson likes to call him. Um, and that is, we're going to get into some technical details. Now before, <laughs> before you hit the skip button... Uh, it's important to understand as we go through some of these technical details, don't let the technical parts bog you down because you don't need to know those things. But we're covering the technical details because at the root of all of these things is some nuggets of knowledge that are really important. So the idea being that we're going to cover some interesting topics that you don't need to remember and you don't need to fully understand. Uh, but the whole point of covering some of these topics today is I want to, I want you to understand why we do some of the things that we do. Why do we need strong passwords? Why do we need randomness uh, when we're trying to do cryptography? And cryptography is behind everything that you do on the internet today, because everything you do, well, hopefully most of what you do on the internet is encrypted. That's the HTTPS. The S is for secure. And secure, in this case, means encrypted. And encrypted means that your communications between you or your web browser and whatever website you're going to cannot be snooped or sniffed uh, by any of the computers along the way, which is something that we want. So how does all that work? How do we make it work? What are the risks? Why do we do it the way we do it? You know, what makes crypto hard? What makes it unbreakable? What makes it breakable? Uh, that's important to understand too. So we're going to kind of cover a lot of these topics and yeah, some of the, some of the words and the lingo we're going to throw out are, are going to be technical. Don't let that, don't let that disturb you. <laughs> Just listen to, uh, the upshot and the things that we derive from, from that after, you know, when we talk about the technical stuff, then we eventually say, you know, this is why that's important. And this is why we do what we do. And this is, uh, why some of these processes that we've been harping on all the time about picking good passwords and using a password manager and all these other things, this is why those things are important. So anyway, it's fun. John is a great guy and he's got some great explanations about how this stuff works. And so uh, let's talk with John Graham coming. We're going to kind of dissect a little bit about some of the underpinnings of how this wonderful world of encryption and security works that we live in every day and what that really means for us. And with me once again is John Graham Cumming. He's a Chief Technology Officer for the Internet Performance and Security Company Cloudflare and one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. Welcome back to the show, John. Uh, it's very, very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, you're, I think you're a regular now. I have to call you a friend of the show. This is your third appearance. <laughs> That's right. Now, I'll happily come back a fourth time if we can think of a good topic. <laughs> oh, there's plenty of topics. And you... Uh you're a great person to talk to you about. I love the way you approach stuff. And that's one of the reasons I love your Twitter account is it's always got such wit and fun. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to cover a little bit of a, we're going to dig into a little bit of a technology topic today, but we're going to try to keep it light and fun. So um, what I'd like to talk to today about some very fundamental stuff. We, I, I talked to my audience uh, not too long ago about the crypto, but it kind of focused on like the history of it and things like that. Um, but I'd like to dig into a little bit of the technical aspects today. Um, so um, let, let's start off with the very basics. Just what does it mean when I when I throw out the word cryptography? What what am I talking about? And for God's sakes, why do people <laughs> need to understand at all why, how it works? Well, the clue is in the name. So there's two words in there. There's crypto and there's graphy, right? So the last part is writing, and the crypto is secret. So you know, cryptography in its most fundamental sense is the art of secret writing. So writing something down and keeping it secret. And why, why, does, why does the average person, you know, need to understand it all, of, you know, how the, what the mechanics are, how this stuff works? Why is it important in today's world to, you know, to have a little bit of a grasp on, on, on how this stuff works and what's behind it? So I don't think people need to know the details, but getting a sense for why we use cryptography, how we use it is useful. I mean, we're all used to keeping secrets, right? So you've probably got a PIN number for your ATM card and you probably won't tell me that. <laughs> if I even if I ask you, and in fact, that secret was got to you in some method that was, you know, in a way secure. So they probably sent it in an envelope that was plain, and they probably had some special writing on the inside so somebody couldn't shine a light through it. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, we, we exchange secrets all the time. Sometimes they're secrets like that, and sometimes they are things that we just don't want others to know or that if others knew them, they could tamper with them and change things like a bank transaction you wouldn't want right. to have. 
Or maybe it's just something that's plain secret, like, you know, a letter you're writing to someone. And in these days, that's probably an email or a text message. So we're, we're surrounded by cryptography. In fact, I would say that the modern world in which we live fundamentally rests on mm. things being kept secret. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't think people understand just how pervasive it really has become in our, in our world because with with the internet and we're connected twenty four seven, we're doing so many things online. And it's not just banking online anymore. It's you know it's all the communications we do. It's some of the websites we go to. You know, when you're going to WebMD and you're searching on something that might be a little embarrassing, you would probably prefer that anybody along the path of the, you know that query can't see what you're doing except for you and the person you're talking to. Um, it's really everywhere now, and if, with um, things like Let's Encrypt, which uh, it's a wonderful program by a consortium of folks that that are making it basically free to set up HTTPS on websites. That's really become um, just about uh, everywhere ubiquitous now. Right. So I think you bring up an important point, which is that you know the the medical issue that you, you talk about there, because often we talk about these sort of things like spies and nations right. spying on each other. Let's just talk about something fundamental, which is you know you're worried you have some medical condition and you go to WebMD to read about it and you do that sitting in a coffee shop and you know if that is not encrypted who can see um, that information who can see what you're looking at well uh, potentially the owners of the coffee shop because they control the wi-fi mm -hmm. and if it's not encrypted they can they can figure that out the isp that the what that the shop is buying access from if it's not encrypted you know they're buying it from comcast Comcast and say, hey, somebody in this coffee shop looked at this particular medical condition. And then um, along the way, there are other entities that might want to know that. So there, this is where we get into the sort of government spying stuff, where there are people who can peek at the traffic mm -hmm. that goes across the internet. And then ultimately, when it gets somewhere close to WebMD servers, whoever the service provider is on that end could potentially look. So there's lots of potential for information to be observed uh, if it's not encrypted. So there's a big push, and now Google Chrome, the browser, is now marking anything mm -hmm. that's not, not secure as literally not secure. So we've gone from, you know, if you remember in the early days of the web, your browser used to actually give you a pop-up saying, by the way, the site you're going to is secure. Right. Okay? Right? Now we've reached the site where Google Chrome is going to say, by the way, this site is not secure. So the expectation now is, is that things are secure because... There are lots of uh, entities that you want protection from, be it, you know, the government of the country you're in or the coffee shop owner. Um, and it's not just observation. It's also changing things. So right. sometimes we've seen ISPs inject literally into the web page mm -hmm. you're looking at ads of their own, a message. That means they're actually observing the very text that you're exchanging on the Internet. And I think that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's more a little terrifying. Yeah, and you know, and say what you want about uh, Google and privacy, but when it comes to security, Google's done a lot of really amazing stuff. And given their market leader position, that I think Chrome has like sixty percent of the global market uh, for web browsers, they have they've done a lot of things to push adoption uh, of encryption. And you're right. And so now, yeah, now it's by default. We should assume that it's encrypted and, and only be notified when it's not. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Okay, so let's let's dive into the into the nitty gritty a little bit. So when I talk about cryptography, how does how does that function? Like the, the basis of all of that, we have uh, a cipher, some sort of an encryption algorithm. What is an encryption algorithm, and how do we how do we use them today? So it wouldn't be a surprise if you, as a kid, exchanged secret messages with a friend of yours, right? You might have decided mm. to mix up the alphabet, right? Um, and then and you were. Between the two of you, you you met and you established a secure connection between the two of you, right? You sat in a room and you said, hey, I'm going to write Z instead of B, or you, you probably said Z. You probably said right. Z. But, right, and you, you decided on what that was like. And you were able to do that because you were able to have the private conversation together, right, and decide on the key. And that's great. But most cases, like if I go to my bank and I want to connect to my bank. I don't have the. I don't go to the bank personally and say, "Can you give me a secret key so I can talk to you?" So what happens is there has to be some way for us to establish a secure connection in the absence of me actually turning up in person and setting that up. And that's what these algorithms are really about. It's about how do I agree on a secure connection between me, my browser, or an app on my phone, and let's say the bank's websites, or WebMD, or my email provider or uber whoever it is 
And that's what these algorithms are there. You know, it's the process by which we get to a point where we're able to have a private conversation, be it surfing the web or me sending a text message to my wife. And and there was some there was a uh, I love to discuss this part because it, it's one of the most fascinating parts to me in the in the evolution of cryptography is originally uh, most algorithms were I think some were all of them were symmetric which is to say that the, you had you know if there's a passphrase or a key or a, a password you know depending on what you want to call it uh, if I wanted to exchange a cri- uh, cryptographic something with you you and I had to at some point share a secret. Uh, a right. single a single secret, but that that all changed in the 1970s. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Right. I mean, you know, at some point you had to establish this connection. Right? You had to establish what the key is we're going to share because you both need to know the key, right, to be able to encrypt and decrypt to encipher and decipher. And prior to the 1970s, you know, the it was not thought that it was possible to do anything other than have one key and share it between you and me. And then there was this very very surprising idea that got thought of in a few different places called public key cryptography, which was the ability for a single party, let's say me, to publish completely publicly a key. Now, normally you wouldn't do that because that's a secret. Right. That's the, that is the secret, right? Um, you, you would publish that key and then another party could use that key to send a message to me. So you, I could say to you, hey, Gary, look, here's my key. You would use that to encrypt a message, which only I could actually decrypt because i had sort of the other half of that key Mm. what we call the private key and that's really quite a surprising mathematical thing because you think how how does that work um sort of sort of the equivalent of this uh if you want to have a kind of an analogy for this is that i've got a padlock and i have a little physical key that goes in it and i say to you i'm gonna i need you to send me a letter so i mail to you a little box with the padlock unlocked, right? Mm-hmm. And you write your letter, you put your letter in the box, and then you lock it with that padlock, and you mail it back to me. I'm the only one who's got the key, so I can unlock the padlock and read your letter. So that you know, there's, there's a mathematical way of doing something equivalent to that. And the reason that's so important, apart from being super surprising, <laughs> is that it deals with this problem of like, how do I set up a secure connection with somebody who I don't have a direct relationship with them so if you visit your bank's website what happens is the bank says hey here's my public key right and then your browser says and this this is called a handshake it's an agreement your browser says oh great okay here's this here's the real secret key i want to use i'm going to tell it to you and (laughs) the reason it can do that is it can encrypt that using the public key of the bank and send it to the bank, secure in the knowledge that only the bank can decrypt. It's only an eavesdropper along the way. It's like, well, I see some encrypted stuff. I know it's encrypted with the bank's public key, but I can't go backwards from that public key. And it's a, it's a little bit of a surprising result because most of the keys you could both encrypt and decrypt. In this case, you could only encrypt and pass it back. But this idea of public key cryptography fundamentally allows the way in which we work today to actually work. We can do all, make all these secure connections around the web, from apps, etc. Without it, we would not be able to. We'd have to be like, well, I've got my bank's special security key. We'd probably all be carrying around <laughs> special physical little boxes with keys that we've been given, secret keys. You know, you'd be like, oh well, if I need to talk to my bank, I get my bank, you know, my bank special thing, I'd plug it into my machine and that encrypts it. And actually, if you look at really uh, you know, fairly old pictures of um, equipment used by the National Security Agency in the U.S. for encryption. People actually had physical keys that were really weird. They'd stick into the telephone they were going to use, and that was actually their secret key. Hmm. But public key cryptography changed all that. Now we can just – I can go to any website I've never heard of before, and it can say, here's my public key. Use that to send me a secret, and we'll use that secret for our ongoing conversation. Yeah, and that really – I mean, that enabled the Internet today. I mean, if, it, if you – there's no way if you if you could not meet somebody in person, you can't possibly meet everybody, everybody in person or every institution in person to exchange a secret because you can't. I can't send it to you through the internet because it's not secure. So uh, we can't. Um, yeah, how would you get it to me? You'd have to you know mail it to me or you know have a courier say here's the secret we're gonna we're gonna use. Right. So that that begs the question about the algorithms themselves. So and this is something I think a lot of people find counterintuitive, and that is these cryptographic algorithms. All and there's there's many of them, and and they've 
they've grown over the years, they've matured over the years, um, you know, everything back from, as you said, the original substitution ciphers to, you know, unbelievably complex mathematical things that we use today. Um, yeah. And these algorithms uh, are public. They, the, how these mechanisms work are completely public and that, and that is by design. Why should we, wouldn't it be safer if we kept the details of these things secret? I, I know the answer to this, but I know a lot of other people don't. Why, why do we do it that way? So we believe that the answer to this is no. And the reason is um, if you keep the details of the algorithm secret, like how your encryption works, not the key, that's different, right? The key is the thing you keep secret, but how it works. If you keep it secret, then it seems like it adds extra security because how could someone break it? But the history of cryptography has shown that even people who didn't know the details of the encryption being used, they were able to actually break encryption like in the classical world of cryptography where people were sending letters with you know, written in secret codes. And what we believe is that by being open, this has a sort of analogy to open source mm. in, you know, in software. We allow other people who are extremely smart to look at that algorithm and find fault with it. And so we, we have more confidence in the algorithm we're using over time. And this has really played out. So there, were, there was an encryption algorithm called RC4, mm. which was used for a very, very long time. It was publicly known. Well, initially, it wasn't publicly known. That was actually <laughs> the interesting thing. It was proprietary. Then it became publicly known. People reverse engineered it. And then over time, flaws were found in it. And because flaws were found in it, then we re replaced it with something else. And so you know, the world moves on if you can do this stuff. And I think if you try and keep it secret, you're, you don't actually provide yourself any real benefit, especially not over the long term. And it's a false sense of security. So we prefer everything to be open except for the key that you and I are using. And that's our, that's the secret. Right. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. So the, the secret part, the part that makes every kind of conversation secure is individual per conversation. Whereas the other problem with the, if uh, with the algorithm, if for some reason that algorithm was, you know, and, and a lot of people, and I fell victim to this, uh, prior to this becoming, you know, accepted fact that these algorithms need to be public is, oh, I've got this really amazing, cool crypto stuff that I'm going to roll my own. Cause it's, I'm so smart and no one will break this and I'm going to keep it to myself. Uh, but if the algorithm itself is ever broken, that's a single point of failure. And every communication ever done with an algorithm becomes uh, worthless. Where, you know, whereas a point, if the algorithm is secure and the only thing you change is these individual keys that are per conversation or whatever, then, it, you know, at least you have the, the hope that, you know, that all the conversations are safe except for the guys who picked really bad keys. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You could have everything fall apart, not just an individual communication if the algorithm was bad. And you mentioned an important thing, which is, you know, people wishing to uh, write their own, come up with their own clever encryption <laughs> schemes. Um, you know, this has happened a lot in the history of, uh, of cryptography because people are like, well, no one could possibly decrypt this. And there's, um, there's a lovely quote. So Charles Babbage, who was a famous uh, 19th century British mathematician who did lots of things. One of the things he did was code breaking. And he, um, he broke lots of codes, many of them without knowing what the algorithm was. People would bring them to him and he would figure them out. And, he has a lovely quote, which is something like, you know, any intelligent person can come up with an encryption scheme that he himself is incapable <laughs> of, he himself is incapable of breaking. Right. Like, so he's essentially saying it's easy to fool yourself into your cleverness. <laughs> so it's better just to publish these things, and then we'll, we'll know which algorithms are good, which ones aren't, and we can, we can then, you know, allow our economy to rest on <laughs> the encryption that we're using. So... How, how do we vet these things? How do I know that a particular algorithm is secure? How long does it take for us to determine, give a stamp of, of approval to, 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 a new, to a new crypto algorithm? So the answer is years. <laughs> uh, what, you know, what really happens in these areas is you have um, a, a lot of research going on in academic world so you know at one point all the cryptographic research was going on in spooky agencies around the world if you look at the first world war and the second world war and even in the cold war that was happening and then as well as public key cryptography in the 70s what really happened after that particularly in the 80s was this big flowering of cryptography was a valid thing to be doing in universities and so actually most of the crypto albums we're using now are being done essentially in public as academic things so they're you know, people are coming up with algorithms and they're publishing them and others are looking at them and trying to break them and criticism just by the normal academic process um, at the same time there are standards bodies which you know 
for particular com countries are trying to make sure that you're using the appropriate level of encryption. So people often think of the National Security Agency in the US and GCHQ in the UK, which is the equivalent, as spying agencies, and they are, of course. But they're also, because they're spying agencies, turning around to their own country and saying, hey, we think you should use these kind of algorithms because we think they're secure, mm -hmm. right? So Because you have to protect your own country. And so organizations like that and also NIST in the US standards body will be having competitions around um, what algorithms should we be using in a year's time and five years time, you know, as you, as you think that algorithms you're using are likely to get weaker over time, computing gets more powerful, we right. find faults with them. So you have this ongoing kind of standardization effort where you're changing the algorithms being used and software is getting updated to use the new things over time. But it's a, it's a years long process, it's not quick. Um, and it's often driven by a need, you know, the academic community or the, or the secret community will say, we're pretty sure this algorithm is gonna be bad in four years time. Right. So we need to start now coming up with new, and by bad I mean, people with a lot of resources will be able to break it. And one of the real rules of cryptography, and actually security in general, is that attacks only get better over time. <laughs> so, you know, someone will find fault with a cryptographic algorithm and, you'll, and it, you know, it'll say, yeah, you can break this if you try, you know, a quintillion keys on, you know, a million machines. And, you know, you just sit there and you think, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and then what happens is other people look at it and they refine it until actually you can break it on your iPhone using <laughs> just download. So, right. so, you know, what happens is there's this sort of trade off. You look at it and you're like, mm, in four years, that's going to be a bad algorithm. Let's start now on what's next. What have we learned about, you know, how we do this stuff? Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize that there's there's this. I think they've even developed like a like a crypto algorithm, almost like a maturity life cycle, where it, you know it starts out being unbreakable, then it then it gets to the point where someone comes up with a theoretical thing like we might be able to do, you know. Then a couple of years later, someone actually shows it in a lab with under the right conditions with a supercomputer. I can kind of make yeah. that work, and it goes on and on until finally it's like, yeah, this is worthless, and we need to move on to the next one. Which is why we have this whole pipeline. Uh, of new algorithms coming along all the time. We've got some in the hopper now that we're waiting, you know, that we're waiting to shift to when the day comes yeah. um, for that, for that eventuality. Right. Right. And, and the big specter on the horizon is a thing called quantum computing. Yes. So right now we're in this world of sort of classical computing or what might Turing computing, right? Where we have these computers and they get faster and faster and faster, but Fundamentally, if you look at what you know the fastest processor in your phone does today, and a processor that was bought in the 1970s when Apple got going, they're pretty much they're doing the same thing. And mathematically, they're doing the same thing. Right. They're just doing it so much faster. Uh, there's another world in which we go, we start using quantum effects, where we get a different sort of computing, which is fundamentally different. And we know because of academic research that once we have one of those quantum computers, it becomes far, far easier to break the cryptography that we're using today, far, far easier. And so, you know, what people are thinking about right now is what the post-quantum world looks like. And what that means is once people have practical quantum computers, we, all these classical algorithms will be breakable. What do we do to fix that today? What algorithms do we need? And that's actually an active area of research. There are algorithms. People are testing them. And the funny thing is it's possible to make an algorithm that runs on a classical computer that isn't breakable on a quantum computer, which is sort of a funny thing. But it allows, it allows us today to start deploying cryptography that is quantum safe, even, even when this, what some people call the quantum apocalypse happens. <laughs> um, you know, we, you know, we, we will still be able to uh, have secure connections on the Internet. And Cloudflare has done that. We've deployed some and tested it. So that's a whole new area that's coming along. That's a fundamental change to how things work. Yeah, underneath a lot of the, the the crypto algorithms we have today is usually some sort of a hard math problem, and it's hard in one direction. So, um, you know, it's it's easy to compute one way. It's really hard to to go the other way. And and what a lot of the current ones uh, are based on is factorization. So you have two pri two huge prime numbers, and you multiply them together. Well, it's really hard to take that multiplied output and come back and factor that back into the two, two primes. That's uh, highly technical, but that's kind of what a lot of things are based on today. And I, I think that's where the quantum computer comes in, where it, it could attack that problem brute force much quicker. And then, so is that where elliptical curve cryptography comes in? Is that is that is that supposed to be quantum safe? 
No, no. So, so you're absolutely right that what you just described is the underpinning of a thing called RSA, which is an algorithm that's been around since the uh, 1970s. It's a public key algorithm. It's widely used on the internet. It is based on you start with two big prime numbers, which you keep secret. You multiply them together, and that multiplication is another gigantic number. And it's thought to be difficult these are funny words I'm using, but thought to be difficult to reverse that, to go backwards, to figure out because of the size of the numbers. And your, your only real strategy is to just do every, try dividing by every single number until you get there, which can be because the numbers are huge, take a very, very long time. That's that's the factorization problem. Um, there are other classes of cryptography, so elliptic curves you mentioned, which are based, the underlying kind of mathematical thing is different. They're based on something called the discrete logarithm problem. But it's a similar idea, which is that there are things that are easy to compute one way and difficult in the opposite direction. So multiplying two large prime numbers together, dead easy for a computer right. to do. Uh, figuring out what those two prime numbers were once you've got them multiplied together is very, very hard. It takes you to try so many different possibilities. Similarly, for the discrete logarithm problem, you may remember logarithms from school. Uh, there's, a, there's a version of which is called discrete, which means it essentially works over whole numbers. And that is easy to do in one direction and very, very hard to do in the opposite direction. And so, unfortunately, those algorithms are likely to fall victim to quantum computing. Do we have, so, so what What are, I, I know we're getting really technical here in the audience, probably their eyes are glazing over, but just real quick at, at a high level, what? how do we solve the crypto, the, the quantum problem? Is there, what's, a, what's our basic uh, method there? With something that sounds even more exotic than uh, the discrete logarithm problem, um, there is right now a thing called a super singular isogeny, uh, which is another mathematical thing, which we've, so Klaus has done experiments with this week. The thing you really need to remember is it's called SIDH when it's in, when it's in the real world. It's super singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman. Diffie-Hellman's mm. a public key algorithm. Right. This is a variant. Um, that's uh, post-quantum safe. And it has been implemented now, you know, and it does, it does work very, very well. Um, so there are new bits of mathematics. Luckily, mathematics is really big. Yeah. We, can go, we can go delve into other areas. There are other bits of mathematics that may be something in lattices. So you go and find yourself a mathematician who will give you an exotic bit of mathematics, and they will hopefully find you an algorithm which is quantum safe. Well, that's good to know that they're out there working on that stuff. And I want the public to understand that the audience to understand that that's what's going on. And, and, and so that's what people, you know, cause I, I know the news tends to say quantum computing is going to ruin everything and we can't, you know, we'll no longer have secrets. And, and I think it's important to know that we are working this problem and there are solutions. So, all right, let's back away from the, the technical edge a little bit and go back to some basics. Um, so the algorithms are known. There's this, there's this, so the things that go into the thing that are unknown or, or the change are the keys and that somehow comes back to a password. Um, so how do passwords come into play here and, and how do, and how do they, um, how do we pick strong passwords? Okay. So there's a link between, uh, passwords or passphrases and cryptography, which is that for any decent website, and there are plenty of bad websites, but for any decent website, when you type in your password, the way in which that password is actually verified, i.e., I know that it's the right password for you, is not that in some database somewhere there is actually the identical password. So you'd think that maybe how it works is, you know, if your password is uh, don't hack me, that somewhere in a database is literally don't hack me associated with your account. That's not how it works. What they do is you take the don't hack me, and you pass it through a cryptographic hash function. And basically what this does is it, in a cryptographic way, securely mixes up everything that's in Don't Hack Me and spits out a very long number, 128 bits, 256 bit number, a very, very long number. But it does that uniquely. So for Don't Hack Me, you get one number. For Don't Hack Me, please, you get a different number. So what will be stored in the database is that long hash, as we call it. And so when I type in don't hack me, the website generates that hash and compares the two numbers in the database. It says, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that must be the same one. The reason this is interesting is that it's very, very hard, once again, to go backwards, to go from the hash, the things in the database, to the original password. And that's why sometimes you will see when there's a link of a database, they'll say, yes, a hashed 
and sometimes even hashed and salted, which makes it even stronger, hashed and salted passwords were leaked, which means one of these long numbers was leaked per customer. It's very hard to go from that backwards, um, unless you used a bad algorithm, which lots of people did. So you have to, again, it's the same kind of thing. Algorithms in this cryptographic hashing world have improved over time. Uh, probably the state of the art right now is a thing called S-Crypt or another one called B-Crypt. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other ones, yeah, you can work backwards. And you're not actually working backwards. What you do is people are really bad at choosing passwords. <laughs> and so what you do is you just try out millions and millions and millions of passwords, generating the hash for every single one of them, right? Until mm-hmm. you get a map. You say, oh, well, this, this string of numbers here is actually, you know, don't hack me, hashed in this way. So... But that's how it's actually really done in the real world. You, you store a hash. You don't store the real password. So what does this really tell you? Well, you know, you hope that the service provider uses a really good hashing algorithm, but you have no control over it. Right. And believe me, you call customer support and ask them <laughs> what hashing algorithm, they're not going to be able to tell you. So what can you do? The really strong thing you can do is you can choose a password that is very hard to guess. And in this case, guess doesn't mean a human guesses it. It means a machine trying out passwords over and over again, right? So, because what you don't want is to use a password that a machine can try out billions of hashes per second, try out all sorts of combinations of letters and numbers and things like that, and you end up finding what your password was. And it's even worse if you use that password somewhere else, because now you're in really big trouble. So (laughs) what can you do to... Pick a good password. Well, first of all, don't use the same password more than once because that's really bad because if one site gets broken into, it's likely you'll use it somewhere else. You'll get hacked in places. That's a real thing that happens all the time. And in fact, the first thing hackers do once they've figured out some passwords is they go try them everywhere else. Right. So, because, you know, they can break into things. The second thing is, Use a password manager, something that generates passwords for you. You know, the best password is one you can't remember. <laughs> it's full of just random stuff. You know, most of my passwords, if the site will, ex- will accept it, are 128 completely random characters. Wow. I have no idea what they are. Either. And sometimes the site says you can't have more than 32 or 64. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. So that's one way. Another way is to use a thing called Diceware, which uh. allows you to pick a sequence of words randomly. So they've come up with a dictionary of 10,000 words. You can literally do it with dice, but you don't have to. There's websites that will do it. And you pick four or five or six words um, and string those words together, and that becomes the password. And the reason that's hard is it's hard for a machine to go through every combination of six words or five words trying to figure out what the password is. And so you can do that and that most password manager programs will will pick you diceware passwords um what you shouldn't do is come up with one by yourself right so don't come up with well i'll change o's to zeros and a <laughs> believe me all the password cracking software can run through that stuff at an incredible speed and, and figure out what your password is so use a password manager have it generate passwords for you randomly make them long could be diceware, could just be random characters, you know, your preference. And if you have to, with passwords, if you have one that you need to know and something, well, you can you've got to have one for your password vault, if nothing else. If you're using a, oh. if you're using a password manager, you've got a password vault, so yeah, you've got yeah. at least one password that you have to know. Yes, and that one, you know, generate it in some obscure way, maybe diceware, maybe it's six random words, right? Um, and, you know, you can write that down. It's not the end of the world to write down a password like that. I mean, don't stick it to your computer on a post and say, this is my secret password. But, you know, write it somewhere in a notebook somewhere where, you know, you know where it is, but no one's really going to know what it is. And if you ever need to look it up, you can. So how, so if I'm going to, so Diceware is one and that's a great one. Uh, Do you, you know, one of the other techniques that, that I've uh, recommended to people is uh, the classic, you know, pick a phrase, something that's not necessarily as people would associate with you with something you can always remember word for word, you know, take the first letter of each one and, and salt in, add in, add in, you know, some random characters and that can be your master password. Make sure it's, you know, at least 12 characters long, that kind of thing. Is there, is that horrible? Is there, do you know of other techniques if you're not going to go the diceware route to come up with your master password? You can do that. The problem is, for example, um, especially if it's like a song lyric or a line from a book or something like that, 
you know, and you're using the initial letters, that's again the sort of thing a password manager a password manager could run through every song lyric error ever, pick out the first letters, try that out very, very easily. I mean, I really do strongly advise people to use the a password manager and generate things randomly. Um, the other thing you should do is you should turn on two factor. Mm-hmm. You should turn on two factor authentication. So um, you know, uh, using an app which has you know those those things where the numbers change every thirty seconds, right. or using a physical security key like a Yubi key, um, that gives you a lot uh, higher level of security because it's difficult for somebody to get that. It's not foolproof, but it's definitely an extra barrier. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit because it's becoming it's becoming more popular. And Google made a splash recently because they're releasing their own key. Uh, most people, I'm sure, have probably never heard of YubiKey, um, but and, you know, unless maybe you work for a large company that forces you to use it at work or things like that. But uh, so the two-factor authentication, I think people are finally getting uh, to use. Unfortunately, it's still a lot of it's SMS based, which is not terribly secure. But um, the apps are, you know, it makes sense. You whip out your phone, you type in a, you know, whatever the current six-digit, you know, pin is that's showing that works. Um, but now we're we're starting to see the uh, more prevalence, I think, use of physical keys. How how do those work? Like, if I on a day to day basis, if I decided, you know what, I'm going to go full tilt on this, and I'm going to use a hardware based key. Wh- what does that mean? Like on a day to day basis, how do I get my passwords from that? How does that work? Well, I'll give you an example. So I have a Google account, Gmail account, like many many people, and I use Google's two factor solution for that. So I have a password. As usual, something that's in my password manager, which if I need to log in, I copy and paste in. And then it will say to me, it'll say, press the button on your key. And this is a thing that plugs into the USB port on my computer. Um, It looks like a little USB thumb drive, and it has a little button on top of it. And I plug it into my computer, and I press the button. And what happens is there is a cryptographic exchange. Yet again, another bit of cryptography happens between the key and Google saying, yes, this is really John. And the reason it knows it's me is when I got the key, I actually set it up with Google. You can do that in your account settings. You can register a key and say, this key is connected to this account, and that allows me to unlock it. And that is giving you a a higher level of security because it's difficult for somebody to intercept what's happening between the key and the website you're talking to. All right. So so basically that means that I need to, like – like days of yore when I want to get into a building, I've got to have the, I physically have to keep that key with me. If I, the weird thing is I have to have that, like my keychain with me if I want to use the internet, <laughs> which is a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people probably that's are not used to. Yeah. That's literally what I have. I literally have a key ring and on that key ring, I have my cryptographic key, um, which I then use to, to unlock things. Um, I actually keep it separate from my house keys because if I lose either one of them, I'd rather not lose everything at the same time. <laughs> so I have two key rings. Um, but yes, it's exactly the same sort of thing. This is essentially a key. Uh, it just happens to be something that plugs into USB. And there are versions that do Bluetooth. There are versions that do NFC, so you can use it with your phone. Um, so it's possible to do that. But then they are. This is a good thing to do. I mean, you should definitely look at that. Yep. All right, so now we come to the part that I think is really fun, and this is actually this was the, this was actually the basis for 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 us getting back together today, as we wanted to talk about this particular next part. So the other thing that goes into these crypto, the other input for these crypto algorithms, besides you know, there's the public algorithm, there's the, the private key you put in, but almost all these algorithms require another input, which is a pseudo random number. So tell me what why does it need random numbers? What does it mean to be a pseudo random number, and how do we do this? Okay, so. Let's go back to that thing where I'm communicating with you and you've got a public key. Right? So you tell me, here's my public key. That's safe to do. It doesn't matter if anybody eavesdrops on that. And then you and I are going to agree on an actual secret key that we're going to use uh, between the two of us for the rest of the communication. And that secret key has to be generated somehow. Right? And you don't want that to be in any way predictable. So you're going to create some unpredictable key, and I'm going to send it to you encrypted with your private key so only you can see it. And it's that unpredictableness that is important there. It cannot be that something else can predict it. That's where you need randomness. You need some random generation of that key to happen on my computer or your computer somewhere. There's going to be a thing like that. And there are other examples within cryptography, things called nonces, which are random numbers that are passed around. Essentially, they're a way of proving that 
hey, this is actually me because I generated this random number and we can exchange this random number and no one else has got that random number or at least the chance of them generating the same random number is very low. So random numbers are fundamentally very, very important for uh, all cryptography. They have been for a very long time, since the Second World War onwards, mm. important to have a source of randomness so you can come up with these things that we can exchange that no one else is likely to be able to know. So when I when we say a pseudo random number, that sounds funny. Would there, and I know the answer to this, but because I've done this plenty of times myself. But what does it mean to be pseudo, and and like what's the concept of seeding, and why? And, and since random numbers are so important, and it's so important that they actually be random, that they have a certain amount of what we call entropy, right? They're they're yeah. really really random. Um, what? How do computers actually generate a random number and 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 make it so it's different, and yet? not always different well so the problem with computers is the great thing about computers which is that we they do exactly what we tell them to do <laughs> and um that is in conflict with you want a random number because if you tell it if you try to come up with a random number generating program it's going to do exactly the same thing every time <laughs> right because right, it's a computer and that's what it's meant to do it's meant to do the instructions you told it so p over time people have come up with algorithms what they call pseudo random numbers that will come up with a sequence of random numbers that are pretty much random although it'll come up with the same sequence every time right and then they'll try to do what they call seed that so they'll try to start that sequence of random numbers off with some other information so they might take the temperature of your computer and say well we'll throw in the temperature and they'll we'll take how long it's been up and what the time of the day is and the movements of his mouse and see how his mouse is moving. So throw in data to help get this pseudo random number generator working. So you have this kind of bootstrap problem, which is like, how do you, how do you get that sequence going? And then there's a whole class of these random number generators, which are kind of poor because they're used for things that are very important. So it might be generating something in a game you're playing where you want a bit of randomness where the monster appears, but it's not for cryptographic purposes. It's not the end of the world. Right. Predict. But there are there's a whole class of algorithms called cryptographic pseudo-random number generators, which are pretty good at coming up with a sequence of unpredictable numbers. Uh, but they still need this sort of kickoff, like how do you get that going? And so you use all sorts of physical attributes from the machine as much as you can, you know, like little variations in how the disk is moving. Well, when disks used to move, right? So <laughs> <laughs> now we have SSDs over the problem. So right. you have to, you know, for anything that requires really high security, you, you want to create random numbers in the most unpredictable way possible. Usually that's using some physical process, right? So if you, you, know, if, you if you ever tune a radio to where there's no station, it makes that kind of right. noise, right? That's actually just randomness, right? There's background noise, radiation in the atmosphere, stuff like that. So you want something like that as your source of, of noise, of, of randomness to get these things going. Um, so that's, you know, for cryptographic purposes, the, the purer you can make the randomness, the better, the less predictable it's going to be. Yeah, I think it's it, it's fascinating to me that, it, it, just like you said, computers do what you tell them to do. So it's actually hard for them to be unpredictable. So, so you know, you've, you've got to come up with these really clever ways to try to find, you know, something within your computer processor's reach that will allow it to not know what the, you know, what the next thing's going to be. And like you said, you kind of get this hopper and you throw in as much crap as you can to try to, you know, make it as random as possible. Yeah. You guys come up with something that I think is just fabulous. And, th and this is, um, uh, is this still, I don't know if it's still available. I don't know if you can still see this but you guys came up with uh, a wall of lava lamps explain <laughs> explain what that was for and and how it's used right so in some ways it's sort of a bit of theater but it also has a as a serious purpose which is in the lobby of our san francisco office we have 100 lava lamps um on a wall running all the time when you imagine the blobs of oily stuff moving mm. around inside them and those blobs of oily stuff are moving around because of heat, right? And so the actual movements around them there, you know, it's a physical process. And we have a camera that's pointing at it, and we take a photograph of that, and then we use that actually using one of these hashing algorithms to come up with a number, and it's literally a random number because it's whatever that mess of oily things is in 100 lava lamps. And, um, you know, people come in and they see that, and they walk in front of it, and they, and they get added to the noise, right? Because there's <laughs> right. Like a, they block out a bit of it and they're, you know, so they're there. And so we can use that to kick off this random number process. We could, that's a good source of random stuff because um, it's coming from a physical process and it looks pretty. 
And so we use that to, to, to start the, the generation of random numbers on our machines because we have a lot of machines worldwide and they need a way to get their, their random number generators sort of warmed up. Do you have a, is there a live camera of this? Could, could people go to the web and actually see this in motion? There's not. And everyone thinks, well, that, you know, that's a terrible, that would be a terrible idea because then people could figure out what the oh, right numbers are. But, <laughs> but you'd have to get, but you'd have to, well, you'd have to get the angle right. Right. And you have to take into account there's other stuff, there's other elements of randomness going into this. So, for example, kept the camera, the actual physical right. CMOS thing in the camera, which is taking the picture, actually will have faults in it. Right. Regenerate, you know, the image itself won't be exactly, if you took, it won't be the same thing. So, it wouldn't actually matter. Now, the best way is to walk past our office or even step into the lobby um, and just see it because it's uh, right there. Well, I will definitely have to do that next time I get out that way, which has, it's been a while, but hopefully <laughs> maybe I'll get out for a conference or something. I'll, I've got to check that out and take a picture. That is wonderful. So just to sum that up, because random numbers are so key to these cryptographic algorithms, there's actually competition for sources of really good em- entropy entropy being randomness and uh i, I know there are other websites on the uh, out there too that like that's like, like their claim to fame like if you want a random number come here i'll give you a really big yes. random number that's truly random and here's why it's random uh, yes. so that's just fascinating and also i mean uh, you'll see there are physical devices which have random number generated them so intel processors the high-end ones they actually have a source of randomness which is um on the chip there's actually uh, a little amplifier which is not tuned properly so it's you know, electrically it's doing something which is completely random it's creating noise and from that you're able to extract a number and get get your random number generator there are things you can buy on usb keys you can plug in um, there are lots of places for especially from kind of natural processes radioactive decay things like that uh, point to point to satellite dish at space where there's nothing right. get radiation uh, all these things are good sources of you know, of, of noise, which is what you want. You want random noise, not not algorithms spitting things out. And just to bring it home, there was, I, I don't recall the specifics, but there was a story of a random number generator, I think an old random number generator on a Linux machine. And uh, the way it worked is it would seed itself at startup time. And and from that point, I don't know if it just used its, at the current date and time or whatever it was, you know, when it first came up. Uh, to figure out, you know, it's a random number sequence. And like we said, you know, these random number generators, once you seed them, once you kick them off, they generate random numbers, but they'll generate the same random numbers if you started off the same seed. And and somebody figured that out and, and was able to break the crypto uh, uh, for the communications on the machine by figuring out what time the system came up. It, it's it's that crucial. If you if you can predict the random numbers, then, you, then the crypto falls apart. Um, that's absolutely the case. In fact, there's a very, very popular website uh, called Hacker News, which um, a lot of programmers go to. It's actually not about hacking computers. It's about writing code, that, the hacking side of things. And years ago, uh, looking at the source code, I realized that the random number generator they were using, which is important because they generate certain tokens, so it's, you know, stop somebody pretending to be me or editing something that isn't me, uh, was being done using a random number generator, which was uh, fairly poor. And also, it too was being seeded by the uptime of the the website like mm. when it was last restarted. And I, I, funny enough, made a comment saying, "I think this is breakable." Um, a couple of people replied, and then about a year later, somebody actually got a bug bounty because they had actually done it. They'd actually projected <laughs> it and were able to get into the website. So those things are very real. You see that in things like sometimes online poker. The thing that shuffles ah, the cards. Oh wow! If you, if you can figure it out, then you might be able to predict what the hand is. So yeah, random numbers. Good source of random numbers is pretty pretty important. Fascinating. At least I find this fascinating. Hopefully, the audience did too. As we kind of took a serious technical walk through it today, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, the only last question I've got for you is if if the audience was intrigued by this, if if we managed to reach some people out there that wow, that's that's cool. I'd like to learn more. Uh, from a layperson's perspective, what might you recommend? Are there books? Are there websites? What if you were if, if someone came up to you and said, John, I really would like to just kind of take the next step and learn some more about this stuff, you know? But I'm not technical. What is there anything you could recommend? Yes, there is a book. It's called The Code Book, mm-hmm. and it's by a guy called Simon Singh, S-I-N-G-H. And um, it's, a, it's, it's an old book. It's published at the end of uh, the last century, <laughs> last millennium. <laughs> even. Um, but it covers the, 
sort of the story of cryptography going from, I think, ancient Egypt up mm. until this idea of quantum resistant cryptography. And um, it's done in a very, very accessible way that talks about these issues and will take you through the whole history and how we got to where we are today. That book is inexpensive, I think is really worth reading. It's called simply The Code Book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've recommended that one many times myself. I love that book. Um, excellent. Thank you very much. And again, this was a lot of fun talking to you. And uh, now that you're a friend of the show, we'll have you back. And we'll as soon as we think of the next topic to cover. Definitely. Thanks, John. Cheers. I want to thank John Graham coming once again for coming back on the show. Uh, really enjoy having him on. Uh, he's so fun to talk to. And uh, if you ever get a chance, if you if you have a Twitter account, follow his Twitter feed. He's really got some great fun tweets from time to time. Some of it's random stuff, uh, but a lot of it's really just kind of fun stuff. So anyway, uh, Cloudflare, we've talked about them before. They've also got a great uh, domain name service that is free and uh, it helps to enhance your privacy. Uh, you can go back and listen. And I think that was actually the last time we had him on. We talked about their 1.1.1 dot one service. Did I say that? Four ones. Uh, and if you would like to trust somebody besides your internet service provider with some of this uh, knowledge about where you go on the web every day, uh, they have a service that will help with that. Cloudflare also has lots of business services, especially for big businesses, but even for small businesses too. So uh, if you've got a website that's uh, possibly in danger of being you know, taken down uh, for some reason through uh, internet attacks, Cloudflare is a great company to have on your side. So check those guys out. Now, uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons is not only the name of this podcast, it's the name of my book. And that's actually what started this whole thing rolling. Uh, and it's about to be uh, published in its third edition. And it's being picked up by a publisher called A-Press. Uh, really, really excited about that. Uh, so now, whereas before it was available on Amazon.com, now it's going to be available just about everywhere. And if you go to Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, uh, online or in the store. You can actually pre-order the book right now. It should be coming out hopefully within a month. Uh, technically, they're saying October, but it should be sooner than that. And uh, the third edition has got even more stuff in it. I keep adding, Every time I rewrite that book, every time I expand that edition, I keep thinking of more and more things to add. Uh, and of course, it's been you know updated quite a bit since I started publishing it oh, four years ago. Um, it's got over 150 different tips in it, uh, on how to keep yourself safe and secure and guard your privacy. Uh, it's just got all sorts of stuff in it. And, you know, again, the, the most of the tips in the book are free. Uh, most of them are fairly simple. Um, and they're just, they're things we should all be doing. And you know, just like wearing seatbelts and putting on sunscreen and brushing your teeth and, you know, all these kind of things we take for granted that we do, you know, uh, these are the kind of level of things that we're talking in the cyber world. These are very simple things that we should all just kind of get in the habit of doing. Um, so check that out. Uh, it makes a great gift. If you, somebody just got a computer or maybe you're the tech person in the family and you're constantly supporting people and they're constantly asking you questions. Well, this is a great book just to hand them and say, here, the answers are right here. <laughs> so check that out. Uh, Amazon.com and many other places now. Uh, and it'll be pre-ordered. It'll be coming out soon. Uh, and lastly, if uh, you'd like to support my efforts more directly, uh, you can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You can search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons there, and you can get the whole spiel there. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that as well. So that wraps up our show for the week. Uh, thank you very much again for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. We'll probably do a news show next week, and I'll catch you up on all the things that have been going on. We've got big hacker conferences going on right now. So there's always some articles and uh, things that come out of that. Um, and we'll be talking about that and other stuff next week. And until then, as always, folks, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.